This morning we are in the last sermon of a series called Because He Lives. And each week we've talked about something that is true in light of the fact that Jesus is alive right now. Um, we, in, a, in our very first week, we talked about how because Jesus lives, we can press on. Even when we are tired and even when we're exhausted, Jesus Christ gives us strength to persevere. In the second week, we talked about how because Jesus lives, we can please God. He gives us his Holy Spirit, and we can actually fulfill the two greatest commands that Carrie was talking about. We can love God and love others. Then we took a kind of turn to the supernatural. We talked about how because Jesus lives, we see miracles. For the past 20 centuries of church history, Christians have continued to see Christ intervene in our world and perform signs and wonders. And then last week, we talked about how because Jesus lives, we call heaven our home. Because we are united to Jesus, we call heaven home. Now, in this final sermon in this series, we're talking about something that is our responsibility as Christians. So I hope by the end of this sermon, you see, you can, you're able to fill in uh, this sentence. Everyone who believes that Jesus is alive should fill in the blank. Now, if you're not a Christian, what we're talking about today is not your job. I'm looking at the Christians in the room and only the Christians in the room. If you don't believe that Jesus is alive, this is not your responsibility. It's not a burden on your shoulders. But if you do believe that Jesus is alive, there is a task and calling for you. But before we fill in that sentence on the screen, I want to point out something that I think seems pretty tame at first, but it's actually shocking and mind-blowing if you give it more thought, which is this. For 2,000 years, two millennia, Jews were not evangelistic. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before, but what I mean is that from the time of Abraham to the last prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi, the Jews are not going around telling other people there's God, only one God, and you should believe and put your trust in Him. They knew that they were supposed to be a light to the nations, but they didn't always spread that news in the form of a message. So, for example, the kingdom of David did not sponsor missionaries to go all over the world to tell the good news of Jehovah. For 2,000 years, the Jews were relatively comfortable keeping their beliefs to themselves. And then, 2,000 years ago, all of a sudden, one group of Jews is very evangelistic. They leave Jerusalem, the holy city. They leave the land of Israel, and they go as far as Rome, sometimes even farther, to tell anyone, Jew or Gentile, what they believe. So what happened? Well, I think that's what I want to talk about this morning, and I think the answer to that question tells us about our responsibility as Christians. So if you have a Bible, I want you to actually like take that physical Bible out and go to Acts chapter 8. If you don't have a physical Bible with you, that's okay. Uh, the black Bibles in the pew racks in front of you, uh, just like Kristen said, go to page 890. We're going to start in verse 26 of Acts chapter 8, okay? Put your finger on verse 26, and I'm going to give you a little bit of background as we walk through that passage. The book of Acts is a story about 
the church. And at first, the church has great success. In chapters 2 and 3 and 4 and 5, the church is thriving. And then once you get to chapter 8, there's a great backlash against the church. The backlash becomes so intense that it becomes violent. And one of the new deacons of the church, deacon is just another word for servants, one of the new deacons of the church named Stephen gets executed by the religious authorities of the Jews. And once that happens, we find out this. A great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And everybody except the the apostles were scattered to the winds. They leave Jerusalem, they go to Judea, they go to Samaria, which is north of Jerusalem, while godly men back in Jerusalem bury Stephen and mourn deeply for him. So what this means is, after just one deacon is killed, it's like this great persecution, it's all this this pent-up tension, and it finally busts, and, and all of the Christians in Jerusalem are threatened. Their lives are at stake, and so they, they scatter. Now, we find out that God uses this persecution for his own purposes. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. I love this. Humans are persecuting, and God is figuring out how to make this into preaching. And Philip, one of the deacons alongside Stephen, went to a city in Samaria, proclaimed the Messiah. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they paid close attention to what he said. Now, this is introducing us to a character you may not know. His name is Philip. He was not one of the apostles, but this first mission that he is sent on is north. He goes north of Jerusalem, and he goes to Samaria, and he is successful. The mission we're talking about today is his mission south of Jerusalem, okay? We find out that an angel of the Lord appears to Philip and says, go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, that isn't much information, if you ask me. This is a 50-mile journey. He's going to have to pack a lot to prepare himself, and he, he gets on this road immediately without much details. He doesn't know what he's going to do while on the road. He doesn't know what he's going to do while he's there. But what I love about Philip is that he just has an instant reaction. He doesn't request any more information or GPS guidance from the angel. He doesn't call a prayer meeting to you know, ask for safe travel. He starts out immediately. And then... Of all the journeys he could have gone on, we find out that on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of, and then there's this word that I could pretend to know how to pronounce, but I don't, so I reached out to a New Testament professor who goes to our church, and he gave me two options, so he doesn't even know, okay? So we're just all going to not act like we know how to pronounce this. This is the queen of the Ethiopians, okay? We're just going to refer to her that way. This, is, this man's whole job is to watch the money for the queen. Now, I can't stress enough how odd, how surprising, how strange it is for these two men to interact with each other. This wouldn't be like meeting a famous celebrity. It would be like getting on a plane, you sit down, and you're sitting next to the Secretary of the Treasury of France. There's just one of those in the world. It's bizarre. You'd probably ask that person questions, and so Philip is intrigued by this person he's near. We find out that he's an Ethiopian. This is the second of two Africans in the New Testament, in addition to Simon of Cyrene, who encounters the gospel, encounters Christianity. And we also know that he is a eunuch. 
Now this is not by choice, but by violent coercion. Ancient kings would castrate men and force them to guard their harem of wives and concubines. The idea was that a castrated man wasn't a threat, so that man can be a bodyguard to all the wives and concubines. But as it turns out, these men don't just stay bodyguards. Sometimes they become officials with a surprising amount of power, and so he becomes the, the tr- in charge of the entire treasury of this queen. At the end of the day, Philip has now encountered a very important man. So if you're Philip and the Holy Spirit has guided you right here, you might wonder, how in the world should I approach this man? Philip, remember, doesn't have the New Testament. He has the Old Testament. And the Old Testament would seem pretty ambiguous at this point. If Philip knew the book of Deuteronomy, he could quote a verse from there that says, no one has been who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. So if he only knew this passage, he might think, well, this guy can't be a part of God's people. But this isn't the only verse in the Old Testament. If Philip knew his Psalms, he would know that Psalm 68 says, let bronze be brought from Egypt, let Ethiopia hasten to stretch out its hands to God. If he knew the prophet Zephaniah, he would know that it says, from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, they shall bring me, that is God, offerings. If Philip knew these verses, he might think this this Ethiopian man is is a sign of fulfillment of these prophecies. But I think there's one verse, one chapter, that would help Philip greatly. Isaiah chapter 56 says, Let no eunuch complain that I am a dry tree, but to the eunuchs who choose what please God, God will give within his temple a memorial and a name better than sons. These men I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy. So whatever Philip remembers from the Old Testament, he has kind of mixed advice about what to do next, and I love that the Spirit clears everything up for him. Here, let me go to this verse. I want to make sure it's there for y'all. Um, we find out in Acts chapter 8, verses 29, if you skip there, it says, the Spirit says, go to that chariot and stay near it. This is what I need you to do, Philip. And I think Philip should be your new favorite character in the New Testament because when the Spirit says go, he doesn't just pause or hesitate or even walk, he runs. And without any more instructions, he goes up to the Ethiopian eunuch and says, do you understand what you read? Now, we know that the Holy Spirit had been working on the eunuch. He was coming back from the temple in Jerusalem. He was already reading the prophet Isaiah. So it's perfect timing because he says, how can I understand what this passage is about without someone to explain it to me? This theme is so consistent in the New Testament. To understand the Bible fully, you need a teacher who knows how Jesus fulfills the Bible. And so Philip explains this passage to him. Now, just stop for a second and think, why would this passage, of all the passages in the Old Testament, catch his eye? And I think it's because he sees himself in the passage. He's reading Isaiah 53, and it says, this this suffering person was led like a sheep to the slaughter. That, That sounds like me. 
as a, as a lamb before its shearer is silent, that, that's like me. I, I didn't open my mouth. In humiliation, he was deprived of justice. That's like me. Who can speak of his descendants? Well, he's, the Ethiopian eunuch is never going to be able to have children. All of this, he can see himself in Isaiah 53, exactly what he's reading right when Philip shows up. And I love that Philip's message is, it's not about you. Isn't that interesting? The Holy Spirit has clearly orchestrated this entire interaction where Philip meets him at, at the perfect spot and, and goes up to him and asks him the perfect question. And he's reading the perfect chapter of Scripture, and Philip says, it's not about you. It's about Jesus. We see that Jesus has a lot in common with Isaiah chapter 53. Jesus was led like a sheep to the slaughter. When he appeared before Pilate, he was silent. He was humiliated when they mocked and blindfolded and spat on and insulted him. He was deprived of justice because the person who executed him said he was innocent of any crime. This is not a coincidence, y'all. Jesus is the fulfillment of the exact passage that the Ethiopian eunuch is reading. There's this book by Esau McCulley called Reading While Black, and he makes this comment. If the eunuch connected with Jesus as one who suffered injustice, then he would be the starting point of an unending stream of black believers who found their dignity and self-worth through the dignity and power that Christ received at his resurrection. I think the bottom line is, he realizes that this passage is not about him, it's about Jesus. And because it's about Jesus, he knows that Jesus is like him. Jesus has suffered like me, the Ethiopian thinks. He knows what it's like to, to be the, the victim of injustice. I'm not the fulfillment of chapter 53. Jesus is, and now I, I know how I need to respond to him. As the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip travel along the road, they come to some water, and the eunuch says, Look, here's water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? I love that the Ethiopian eunuch doesn't come up with a bunch of excuses. He says, This is too perfect. This is too providential. It has to be for me. What can stand in my way? What can hinder me from being baptized? And Philip couldn't agree more, so he takes the eunuch down into the water and baptizes him. And this is what I love the most. Of everything that happens here, the eunuch realizes that Isaiah 53 is not about him. But by getting baptized, he does fulfill Isaiah 56. Isn't this incredible? Isaiah 56 says, Let no foreigner say, The Lord will excuse me, exclude me. To the eunuchs who hold fast to my covenant, I will give them joy in my house of prayer. Guess what's true about the eunuch? He was a foreigner who is now included in the church. He holds fast to the new covenant in Jesus, and he goes away rejoicing. Isaiah 53 is about Jesus. Isaiah 56 is about him. Can you believe that? That's what happens when Philip shares the good news. And that's why this is the last sermon in this series, because we have a job to do. Because Jesus lives, we have to share the news. 
This is not something you can keep to yourself. This is not something that as a Christian you can believe and not tell people about. Look, if you're not a Christian, this isn't your responsibility. But if you are, this is your responsibility. You don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to know every possible theological question you could ever be asked. You don't have to be a trained minister. You don't have to be an educated evangelist. But you got to share the news. You have to be open to sharing the fact that Jesus is alive. This is why I asked that question in the beginning about why Jews suddenly became evangelistic. 2,000 years ago, I mean, you've got to ask why. What happened? And what happened is the fulfillment of all the promises they had been waiting for had finally come. They see that Jesus is the fulfillment, not just of Isaiah, but the entire Old Testament. This is what they've been waiting for. There's been so much anticipation, and now they can't even help themselves. They have to tell everyone. Now, as Christians, we believe we've got to share the good news through our lives, through our actions. But I I don't like it when that's an excuse to never use our words. There is this famous quote given to St. Francis of Assisi. You might have heard it before. Preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. You know who never said that? St. Francis of Assisi. Never. In fact, everything about his life shows that he, he, he followed Jesus with his life and his words. One of the stories we have goes like this. He's talking to his fellow brothers who are going to go out and share the good news. And he says, dearest brothers, let us consider our vocation to which God has mercifully called us, not only for our own good, but for the salvation of many. We are to go throughout the world, encouraging everyone to repent, to recall the commandments of God. But don't be afraid that you seem few and uneducated. And then he says this, with confidence, simply proclaim repentance. Trusting in the Lord because by His Holy Spirit, He is speaking through and in you. I think this quote is a lot better than the fake quotes. St. Francis of Assisi cared about the way we live our lives, but he also cared about his words. Philip performed mighty deeds in Samaria, but guess what he does? He just explains the Bible to the eunuch, and both things brought people to the gospel. If you read the whole book of Acts, it is just filled with Christians talking a lot. It's kind of a thing we do. Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2, 3, and 4, and Stephen preaches in chapter 7, and Philip preaches here. And then the rest of the book of Acts is all about Paul going around and talking a lot. It's not an, it's not an option. It's not avoidable. We have to be willing to share what we believe because Jesus himself identified us this way. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my, everybody say it with me, it's underlined, witnesses. What does a witness do? They get up in court, and they talk about what they've seen. Being a witness is is not easy, though. The word that Jesus uses here is martures, which is where we get the word martyr. Those who died for their faith in Jesus were originally called witnesses. Being a witness is not easy, but it's not optional. And you just have to think, y'all, how many men and women and children in this city are like the Ethiopian eunuch who are out there waiting for someone like Philip? 
this church, each Christian in here could be a Philip. You can share what Jesus has done in your life. You can share that you believe that Jesus is alive. And what could happen? What could happen? Let's pray. Father, we pray for the Holy Spirit to lead us to those who are waiting, to those who might be reading your word and have no idea what it means. We pray that you would empower us to be as bold and as obedient as Philip. When you tell us, go, Father, give us the strength to run. Father, we don't know everybody out there who who might be open, but surprise us, shock us with how open and willing people are to hear the good news. We know the Holy Spirit is at work even when we don't know it. So, Father, we ask that you prepare people and you would challenge and empower us to reach out and to share the good news. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.